Good to be back home in Indianapolis after a successful July recruiting period. A lot of travel, a lot of time spent in the gym, a lot of time spent in different hotels, going from city to city. But it's nice to be back in Indianapolis and back with my family. This past week, we wrapped up our last week of workouts. It was good to be back with my team. And uh, now they have a nice little break before uh, we start the school year uh, officially uh, in a couple weeks. Also, while on the road, I get a chance to run into a lot of my coaching buddies, friends in the profession, and had an opportunity to run into one of my good buddies who I asked to join the podcast this week, and he did not disappoint. One of my favorite podcasts so far, a lot of great stories, a lot of great energy. So when we come back, the head coach from the University of Florida, Cam Newbauer. All right, our guest this week is one of the fastest rising coaches in women's college basketball. He's had an opportunity to work at several high major schools in Georgia, Louisville. He took Belmont to -to back-to-back NCAA tournament appearances, and he's now resurrecting the Florida program. Welcome to the program, Cam Neubauer. I appreciate it, Coach Parkinson. Uh, pleasure to be here, and this is uh, might, might be my first podcast ever I've been on, and it's a pleasure to be on yours, my man. Well, I'm excited to be able to chat. We had a chance to run into each other recently uh, during July in the recruiting period. I see you in D.C., walked up to see how you're doing just to chat, and you uh, didn't look so hot, and I think it'd be great <laughs> to kind of start start off and share uh, you know, this, this kind of crazy story that you told me uh, with your most recent travels and recruiting well as as you know when you're on the road in july you're trying to see as many kids as a short amount of time and we decided that uh, i was going to go over to belarus to, to watch the 17 underworld championships and in doing so we were allowed to go out a couple days before the actual recruiting period started here in america and so on thursday the 19th i set out here in gainesville and flew to atlanta and then i was going to atlanta to rome and then supposed to go from Rome to Minsk, Belarus. Well, uh, that's a, a nine and a half hour flight from Atlanta to Rome. And about two hours in, I found myself uh, more than under the weather, and I was um, I was vomiting, let's say, for uh, for about seven hours. Got off the plane and was still throwing up. Uh, proceeded to miss my connecting flight because I couldn't stand up. I, I did the whole wheelchair. I don't know if you. I don't know if you ever done the wheelchair from in the airport. <laughs> no, I've never done the wheelchair. When you told me that, but, I, I was trying to picture I was, it. <laughs> I was that guy. Uh, I, I didn't look up. I, I couldn't really see anything. I was so dehydrated and, and tired. Um, uh, a fellow friend of mine, JC, who's an assistant coach at Florida State, actually called me when we landed and said, "Hey, man, where are you?" I uh, told him I was waiting on a wheelchair, and he hung up on me because he thought I was kidding. <laughs> yeah, and then I come rolling up to the gate in a wheelchair, and he comes up all apologetically, felt bad. Uh, so then I decided to miss that flight and, and go to the, the doctor there in Rome. And uh, one of the one of the finer parts of the trip was, you know, you you watch the the Born Supremacy and all those movies where these people are in Europe, and you hear those funky sirens, the European ear near ear near. Well, I got to ride in an ambulance with that thing blaring. So bucket list checked, you know. <laughs> Um, I, I go to this clinic, I get an IV, and uh, next thing you know, I'm, it's 2.30 in the afternoon with no more flights to Minsk, Belarus. So I, I uh, had no clothes. 
I had just what I wore that was pretty stanky at the time. And so I go to my hotel, slept for about five hours. And uh, if you've ever traveled to Europe, um, you know that it's not quite America. And so there is not a washer and dryer on every floor of a hotel. (laughs) (laughs) So um, I checked and there was one washer dryer on the second floor. I was staying on the sixth floor and my flight the next morning was leaving at 7 a.m. And now I had to go to Frankfurt and then Frankfurt to Belarus. So I'm sitting there thinking, well, I've got to do something with these clothes that have who knows what on them, right? So I uh, washed them in my bathtub. I used all the shampoo and shower gel I could find. Uh, the front desk, they had a little uh, a little, you know, store area, but they didn't have the basic amenities that you find. So I didn't really have detergent. So then it's about 10 o'clock at night. And uh, also with the smaller items in your hotel, the hairdryer was smaller. So I'm trying to use the hairdryer to dry my clothes for about an hour. And my clothes weren't fully drying and they weren't going to be dry in the next six hours. So I decided to take a gamble. Um, My clothes were wet. And so I put a robe around my waist and a robe around my shoulders. Or not a robe, I'm sorry. There was no robes. I had towels around my waist and shoulders. And I figured, you know what? I got to get these dry. Let's go see what's on the second floor. So I walked down to the second floor, and luckily the dryer was available. Put my clothes in the dryer for about 40 minutes, and they dried. Uh, best part was some guy came in <laughs> to the laundry room while I was sitting there in my towels, and um, he couldn't speak English, so I don't know what he was thinking when he saw me. Text message is Sunday while I was in the gym on the last day of the period from a baggage claim guy in Belarus that said, you're not going to believe this. Your bag just showed up. So apparently my bag showed up uh, Sunday, but as of today, I, I have not seen it. And it stinks because we just went Jordan brand and I got tons of brand new Jordan gear in that bag. So um, anxious to see if I get it back and what's in there. Yeah, I don't think you're getting that back. If there's a foreign <laughs> foreign person that goes through that uh, in customs and sees the Jordan gear, you're definitely not getting back. One of the things that made me laugh about your story, uh, how you piece together outfits. I mean, you had friends giving you clothes. And then the other thing that made me laugh and talk about that is like people in Rome don't even know you were there or that you've left because you just walked out of the hospital and didn't ever really have to pay for anything. Well, it was strange because I got on this stretcher and I never went through customs. So they didn't, uh, they didn't take my passport and you know, anything. So I could have like been Jason Bourne and, and been in Rome doing who knows what. And then, you know, the other cool part was at this hospital clinic, whatever it was, they gave me an IV and they never asked for insurance. They never asked for money. So, so all of a sudden they take this IV out and they're like, you can go. And I literally looked at him and said, where? <laughs> and I, I didn't know what to do. And then, um, when I was in Belarus, Thank goodness Sam Purcell from Louisville let me borrow a Adidas shirt that I proceeded to wear inside out because I didn't want to, you know, my my Nike contract. I didn't want to, you know, go against that. Uh, Wes from Michigan let me borrow a pair of his cargo shorts. Um, so I was, yeah, I was incognito and it was funny cause I talked to a recruit yesterday and she was like, Hey, were you actually at my games? <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, it's funny you say that because in recruiting, uh, the players, I feel like a lot of times, and I remember when I played, I mean, you see these coaches and they just pop up and you just assume, well, everything's, you know, smooth. They don't really know maybe some of the crazier things that happen, uh, as we're traveling back and forth and trying to get to games and, and go through delays. You've been a lot of different places. You're, you're a well-known recruiter. Uh, 
when you do this long enough, you've got some some funny stories in in trying to land kids. What's the, give me a unique uh, or, or one of the more crazy out there stories you've had or, or seen in trying to to land a player or get their attention? Well, it, it's you see it all. You know, you see the the one young lady that. Um, you know, Shoni Schimmel, uh, her, her story on how she got to Louisville and what that did for Jeff Walls and his program uh, and, and helped lead us to the national championship game when I worked for him. You know, you're talking about uh, one of the most coveted players in the country coming out of high school. And what made that recruitment so crazy was that she didn't really talk to anybody ever. Her father would kind of talk to coaches here, there. And then late in her senior year, like April, finally gets on the phone. And by that point, everybody has kind of dropped off of recruiting her because they think, you know how it is, Austin, like if they're not talking to us, we think that we're not involved. Mm -hmm. And so people back off. Well, all of a sudden she decides to start talking to people. And it's almost like last man standing. And Louisville ends up kind of getting her just because they stayed in the race long enough. And, and look what happens to the program. And then you got other recruits that you can sit there and recruit them from, you know, they come to your camps as seventh, eighth graders and you recruit them for so stinking long and you feel like your best friends and you feel like, you know, that family more than anybody. And then it's almost like you think it's a for sure thing. Well, last second all of a sudden it's like they know you so well that you're easy to be told no and they go somewhere else and so it's it's one of those things where you have head scratchers all the time and we 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 talk as a staff and we always say we can't be surprised by anything anymore Mm -hmm. because um you'll put your best foot forward with trying to be the most creative to to be the billboard that they see you there all the time and you got all the gear on and then there's times where you try to uh some you know your visit be the most creative visit and uh you know in terms of stories it's you know you do so much i've been doing this 17 years on the men's and women's side now and um there's so many of them and trying to think of, of the best one. Um, th- obviously that's, that's the best one. Now, if we don't end up getting this young lady that I went chasing over there, then it's, I don't know if the story's going to be quite as good. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, one of the things I laugh about, and, and it was a good example. One of my, my coaching friends and mentors told me a story one time he was recruiting, uh, uh, this was back on the men's side. He was recruiting a kid and had a great relationship with the family, great re- relationship with the kid. And he was going to his high school game. Game, but that particular high school coach did not want the kid to go to his school. And so he went to the game. It was a packed house. And, and typically after a game as coaches, we stay around and try to talk with the head coach and kind of get to know them a little bit or, or just, you know, pass a uh, quick conversation. And my buddy, uh, after the game, uh, the, the team won. He went down to the locker room to kind of say something, waited around, was very patient. And this coach took his team out the back door, hopped on the bus and left because he did not want my buddy to to have a con, you know, just to even be seen by this kid because he'd have no idea whether he was there or not. It was a sold out game. So the lesson I took from this, he told me he drove, he got in his car, he got on the interstate, he followed the bus, he drove 
passed the bus, waved the bus down, pulled off to the side of the road. He got on the bus, walked to the right by the driver, walked to the head coach, grabbed him, shook his hand and said, coach, just wanted to make sure you knew I was there tonight. Congrats. Get great game <laughs> and walked off and left. And you know, that, that obviously the whole team sees that, um, he didn't do anything wrong, but that was always a good lesson for me as a, as a young recruiter of, you know, trying to think outside the box and, uh, you know, just sometimes what it takes just to, uh, you know, do the little things. And, and I know you're, you're one of the best at that. Yeah. You, you've got, to, you got to start to learn who your enemies are and who your allies are and who those people are that are going to tell you when schedules change. Cause we've all been there in July. You're not allowed to communicate with these kids and these coaches. And so all of a sudden you show up at a gym at 8am and the team's not even there. There's been a schedule change where the team's not showing up. And so, uh, you know, you got to keep your, hopefully by that point you got relationships to where people will text you even though you can't respond and say hey look we're playing we're not playing but you will have situations like that where it's so political that coaches sometimes will drive situations to where you're not seen and so you gotta gotta um, be ahead of the game and understand what you're up against and that's that's the beauty of recruiting that's the chess match and all this where um you got to figure out how to get to the families, how to get to the kids. And, you know, it, it's been great. When I was at Belmont, it recruited against you a lot and, and lost some really good players to what, uh, what you guys are doing up there at IUPUI. And I don't know if, I don't know if viewers know, um, Austin, but, you know, you, you own me, man. I mean, you're plus 19 in the three games we've played. And, and I think not only owning me, but, I mean, do you realize all the great things your family's got to do in games against us? I mean, you, you know what I'm talking about? <laughs> I was wondering if you're going to bring that back. Well, let's, let's state for the record. Uh, I don't know about this plus 19 business. I, I know that my, my last game versus you was an L on my end. So, uh, that's the, the last time we played, but, uh, it was overtime. It, it was, was overtime. It, it was so overtime. Here, here's the thing that people don't know. My head coaching indoctrination you know, I'm all fired up. I'm from Fort Wayne, Indiana. I'm playing against IUPUI and Austin Parkinson, who played at Purdue, and all my family's coming to the game in Indianapolis. I'm like, all right, this is my first ever head coaching game, and you put it on me by 22. <laughs> yeah, I know, and you know what? And we're still friends. So that, you know, it, it worked out. And then, and then, wait a second. And then we come back up there two years later, and, and you, you're like, I think you're, you know, you just enjoyed the first one so much that this time Whitney decides to have her her um, mascot debut, and she is the, the the mascot during our game, which we lost again by three points at your place. So crazy story. When you guys came up, it was right around Christmas. We talked beforehand, and I said, "Hey, would it be cool if we did an ugly sweater game?" And so you, you, you agreed to it. We both did it. You know, we're both good sports. And uh, my wife, we had been serving at something on campus, and uh, our, we found out that the mascot. Um, wasn't going to be at the game because of something to do with finals or whatever the case may be. And my wife casually says, yeah, you'd be really, you'd be really cool to be the mascot. And I was like, she, you're not serious. She's like, yeah, yeah. I, I want to be the mascot. So I'm like, okay, you know, and, and we set it up and before the game, and I don't know if you remember this, like I told you before the game, yes. you, yeah, knew, you did, you, you did. and I were the only ones that knew that she was the mascot. And 
I couldn't pay attention, you know, like during introductions, I'm watching her like timeouts coming out of timeouts. I'm watching her. It's like, you know, obviously my wife's phenomenal for her to be able to do that. And, and she had a great time with it. It was a good sport, but yeah, that was a, that was a unique deal. We brought her down to the locker room afterwards and uh, I pretended to be upset about the mascot coming in. Uh, you know, my kids knew, <laughs> my kids knew like I would not have any time for that. And so I pretended to act like that. And then I went and gave the mascot a kiss and they looked at me like I was crazy. And then we, you know, we took the hat off and there was my wife, but, uh, you've always been uh, yeah, you were a good sport about that, but, uh, you did the last well, time we played. I, I the, took the, the, on, the only Bush league part of all this was when you came to our place, she didn't even come along and I was hoping she'd be bruiser. <laughs> <laughs> oh yeah, no, that would have been, uh, that would have been something else. She was, she was on the, she got uh, a one game, uh, only was, uh, was her mascot uh, appearance. But, uh, as you mentioned, Hey, you, you were at Belmont and uh, I kind of want to do this a little bit in reverse. I, I want to go backwards and I want to start with where you're at now. You're in one of the most prominent leagues in the country. You have experience, um, you know, being in that league, working at Georgia. Uh, what's it like being back at Florida? And when, when you got the job, you go through the press conference, you go through all those things, and then you're there in your chair and, and it's week one. What was your immediate priority uh, when, when you took over that position at Florida? Uh, the relationships with our players on campus was very important because what people don't understand unless you're in this profession is you're dealing with 17 to 22 year olds and their emotions and their feelings are, are so much uh, of importance because you're talking kids that picked a certain coaching staff grow grew with them got to know them became very good friends and then all of a sudden a, a there's a change and now we got these new people coming in that you're going to be playing for and so it, it's it's tough because uh it's they didn't pick me i didn't pick them but this is what we got and so that process is is, is a tough one and the quicker you can start to get to know each other the the quicker the progress will, will begin for what's next in the program. And so I think you've got to first and foremost have those people on campus. You know, you often hear people say the most important recruits are the ones on campus. And so I think that was very important just to get in front of our players and to spend time with them, whether it be through workouts, whether it be just sitting down talking um, and letting them really see what I valued in them with the academics, their social life, the basketball part of it, um, but just them understanding kind of what was going to be most important important for us and our culture moving forward. Well, as you get there and, and you've got your family, you're moving to Florida, you've got recruits you're trying to get, um, you know, in touch with. And, and really, when we'll come back and talk about kind of how you've widened the net there. And then you've got your current players. The style that you played at Belmont and, and you guys were very up tempo. You shot a lot of threes, used your post well. When you come into Florida, do you have to adapt your system to that current set of players? Or do you say, hey, we're going to we're going to you know push through this and we're going to you know, we're going to implement the style I want to play and we'll figure it out, you know, as we go. It's funny you say that because I always thought that you can't fit a square peg into a round hole. And so I was always of the notion that, all right, you got to figure out what you have and then develop a style around that. And so that's what I came in here with. And then the more we drilled and, and ran practices and workouts before the actual um, practice season started, 
I started to see some things that told me that I thought we could probably play a little more the style that I would like to play with, with spreading the floor and shooting threes. And that was in part because we had two six four forwards that were very skilled and could stretch the floor. We had some good guards that were capable of shooting threes. And so the year before I got here, University of Florida made 110 threes. My first year here, we broke the school record, hit 249 threes, and led the conference. Unbelievable. And wow. so, and part of that is just because we shoot so much in practice and we stress what we value. And I think that's what helped us. Now, it took a while for our players to uh, really fully understand what it was we valued and what we wanted to do. Because, like I said, um, a number of these players have played for a completely different staff, completely different um, style and system. And so just that process took some time. And uh, we had some ups and downs, you know, non-conference-wise. Um, we, we lost to some non-BCS schools, which, uh, you know, if, if you've done this before, it's to be expected, unfortunately. Um, but if you look at our S season you know we, we were right there with a number of teams with a chance to win the game on the road at top 10 programs and um it was fun it, it was tough um, but it was a lot of fun well you, i want to touch on something you just said you talked about the shooting and and for those that don't know at belmont i mean you guys were just lights out from three always one of the top in the country uh, you had one of my favorite players darby maggard i think that's a senior there now but then you go to florida and you just mentioned something 110 threes the year before and then you set the school record now what are some of the things that you're doing? You mentioned, obviously, you guys do a lot of shooting, but how much do you talk about shot selection? How much is it talking to the kids about where you want your shots coming from? And then how much are you tinkering with kids uh, shots? Because clearly before that, that team didn't shoot particularly well. Yeah, I'm a detail person. And obviously coming from Indiana, um, I'd like to say I'm a shooter because if you don't if you don't play basketball in Indiana, if you're not a shooter, you're kind of an outcast, as you know. And so I think my roots are, are where a lot of this has come from. And, um, you know, I was working with a kid yesterday and I noticed how the ball the ball just sticks back in our palm a little bit. So just adjusting uh, the width of her thumb, you know, the web of her thumb to her index finger, pushing that out a little more, how all of a sudden it put the ball up on our finger pads, um, the, the twisting of the shoulders. Uh, we talk a lot with our players about their awareness of, all right, where's the where'd the ball just hit? You need to coach yourself when you're shot because if the ball went left, well, your shoulders are twisting or your follow-through is coming across your face. And so we talk a lot about those little details that you can coach yourself on. And so until they are, are cognizant of that, we use a lot of verbal cues. And so our coaches are always talking about hands and feet ready, ready to catch and shoot, you know, same shot every time, um, pogo stick, up and down when you jump, falling forward on your shot so your momentum's going forward, not, not fading your shoulders back and so when we do a lot of these shooting drills, we're constantly giving them the same verbal cues, uh, trying to make it become muscle memory almost. And then what happens is they start to have a, a better awareness about their own shot. Now, in terms of shot selection, we will shoot shots that a lot of coaches don't like. But we will do that because we practice transition threes. We practice threes behind ball screens. We practice a lot of shots that some coaches do not want their players taking. And so, um, you know, I don't know if you saw last year that, that incredible tweet that Patrick Ewing had. Patrick Ewing is sitting in a timeout talking to his team, and he has just subbed out one of his players. And all of a sudden, he looks up at the player and he says, 
I've never seen you practice that shot. Do you practice that shot? And the kid couldn't answer. And Patrick Ewing says, well, then why are you shooting that shot? And so it's kind of the same notion is if me as a coach is not helping you develop these shots, then how else do I help you learn shot selection? Do I just tell you yes and no? Because if I tell you no all the time, you're never going to hit that shot at the end of the shot clock that we need you to make. And so there, there's a fine line between giving a player's autonomy, but also giving them the education of them understanding what it is that, we'll, that, we, that we want them to do. Well, I, I tell my kids in practice, you know, I want to see you work on it. I'll let you let it fly. I mean, you can shoot it from anywhere, but I want to see... I want to see you working on it. I mean, we had a kid a couple of years ago, I'd watched her play AAU and in high school, and I'd probably seen her shoot a combined five threes in her life. And uh, the first week of practice, she's, she's already launched like 10 threes. And, uh, you know, I just told her, I said, listen, I don't know, you know, if you thought you were coming to play for Bill Nye, the science guy, but we're not out here experimenting. <laughs> like, you know, if I see you work on it, by all means, let it, let it rip. But, you know, I've got to see that. And I think, you know, that's what you're saying. You obviously want to give them the confidence, but you also want to see them working on it and putting the time in. It obviously seems like something that they've been able to do. What's it like for you being back in the SEC? one of the premier and one of the elite conf- you know, conferences in the country, uh, tons of national championships, that competition game in and game out. What's that like? And, and what your first year being, you know, being back in the conference? Well, it's a dream come true. First and foremost, uh, you know, I, I had, I had visions of one day trying to play at the highest level, you know, growing up in Indiana with Indiana, Purdue, Notre Dame. And, um, you know, that didn't happen for me, but, uh, I fell in love with coaching and I've just tried to chase this dream. And so to, to have this opportunity is just absolutely amazing. Um, and, and to be in such a revered league is just incredible. But then also to be at the university of Florida where every sport on campus competes for national championships, it's just uh, such a blessing and, and so grateful for the opportunity. Uh, but then you're talking about an extreme amount of work, um, to get, to where you can compete at the highest level because you're talking of so many incredible coaches in our conference. You're talking about so many incredible players. And so you've got to be creative, you know. Um, I'm not going to be able to turn this around and get it going by doing what South Carolina does right now. Mm -hmm. And so you got to be creative in, in your angles on how you, on where you recruit, who you recruit, and then also who we're going to be. And so it's been exciting for me because it's a new chapter where you're constantly being challenged because as much as uh, I'd like to think we had great success at Belmont, I can't do it the same way with the same type of kids. Mm And so you've got to be innovative and your staff has to be innovative. And so it's just that constant challenge on how do we get this done? And you know how it is, man. That's that's what drives us. Well, we talked a little bit on the road. You know, in Belmont, you were recruiting the Midwest and, and kind of had a niche there and, and a reputation there. And but but that was kind of the net. I mean, you know, outside of maybe some ties to a specific person, um, you know, on a West Coast or East Coast. But now you're at Florida, which is a national brand. And, and the way recruiting is now a global brand that brings some major positives to the net that you can cast. There's some obvious positives, but what are some things that we may not think of from a, a, a national opportunity now that you have to go out and get different kinds of players to come to your program? Yeah, the, the brand is so strong. I mean, you talk to kids in Europe and they know about Florida just because of the demographic or the geographics of it. You know, you're talking beaches, you're talking warm weather. 
Uh, and then when you really start to dig in and you, and you see the number nine public institution in the country, um, you see all the, f- the resources we have, all the facilities, you see all the national championships um, that, you know, baseball, softball, women's tennis, uh, track and field have won uh, eight national championships the last nine years, indoor, outdoor. You see the world's fastest swimmer in three events, Caleb Dressel, who just graduated. You see uh, our softball player of the year as a sophomore last year, and, and they won two national championships the last five years. I mean, it's so the more you dig and once you're here, you realize how great this brand really is. And uh, the, the biggest thing is this the people here. You know, there's a reason that Billy Dahman still comes back to town. There's a reason why Steve Spurrier has an office in the football stadium and he's the ambassador and he, he's at all these student athlete functions. Um, and so that, that's the, the thing you don't understand till you get here. And that's why I think it's such a good fit for me uh, and my family is because we're relationship people. And so to be at a place where we can really dig in and try to make a great place just a little better. Um, it, it's exciting. You mentioned Steve Spurrier. My goal in life was to simply just be called the old ball coach. Like that would have been, <laughs> that would have been like the coolest, uh, coolest thing ever for me. Uh, if that had ever happened, you know, you, you talked about some of those, those national, um, uh, brand and the awareness, but also you live in SEC football country. I've been to the swamp when I was younger. I took a visit. I couldn't believe how beautiful it was in campus. What's it like though? Having, you didn't have football at Belmont. You've got football now. Not only do you have football, you got the best brand of football maybe in the country. What's that like? And how do you utilize that with, with recruiting? Well, for instance, um, you know, I, I'm talking about how great the people are here. L- let me tell you one weekend we had last year, Thursday night, I'm at the airport in Gainesville waiting to pick up a a young lady coming on an official visit. And one of the first five people to walk off the plane is uh, this guy that won a Heisman Trophy named Tim Tebow. (laughs) (laughs) And um, he's with the booster, and the booster introduces me to him. And uh, he says, hey, coach, what can I do for you? I said, if there's any way you can come by practice tomorrow afternoon at 2.30 and speak to our team, our team would go nuts. And I'm thinking there is no way in heck that Tim Tebow is going to come by practice. He's here in town doing the Sports Nation ESPN game because we're playing, uh, I think, LSU. Tim Tebow shows up at our practice the next day and talks to our team for 20 minutes, um, meets the recruit, and, you know, shoots around with our kids. So that's on Friday, right? And that's just incredible because Tim Tebow is the genuine article. All of a sudden, Saturday morning, meeting with the recruit in my office, and I get a text message that says, um, Mike Miller is shooting in your gym right now. (laughs) And for those of you that don't know, Mike Miller is a 17-year NBA vet, NBA Rookie of the Year. He, uh, Butler fans do not like him. He hit the shot in overtime and maybe 0-1 that beat Butler in the NCAA tournament before they really got it rolling. And his wife played volleyball here on three Final Four teams. And so I walk out on the mezzanine and Tim Tebow, or I'm sorry, uh, Mike Miller is shooting around with his kids in our gym. I go down there, say hi to him. And this is a 6'9 specialist NBA three-point shooter. That's who LeBron picked to, to come play with him with the Heat, won two championships. And he's just the most down-to-earth guy. Uh, a couple weeks before that. Um, white chocolate Jason Williams is in the gym watching the men practice when I go over and spend some time with him and man it's just crazy because of the greatness that's came through this place uh, in November I've got a recruit in our academic center and Dara Torres one of the greatest swimmers of all time Olympic swimmers who swam here at Florida 
I bump into her at the academic center. I'm just kind of hanging out. Next thing I know, two days later, I get an email from her thanking me for what I do at Florida. And this woman's won gold medals. And, uh, it's just every day you never know who you're going to see because of what this place is. Well, and you mentioned that's the standard. I mean, there's national championships across the board. And, um, you know, I have no doubt you're going to get that program right in that direction. One of the other things is going to a power five school like that. And in Florida is a significant increase in the media requirements, uh, fan connection, um, you know, events that you have. How do you balance all that? And what's what's that like now uh, having such an increased volume of, of responsibility and time commitments? Yeah, and for me, it's tough because, as you know, I like to talk, Austin. So <laughs> I don't, uh, I don't mind getting out and, and meeting people and talking, and I enjoy that. And uh, the family obligations, what's hard uh, with two young young daughters at home and a, and a third child on the way. So my wife and I have spent a lot of time where um, she understands these first couple of years. This is what we have to do. We've got to, we've got to get our brand and our product out in front of people. And um, I'm I'm the spearhead of that right now, and so. Uh, building those relationships, uh, learning what Florida is, meeting the people that have really built this program to be what it is. Because without a, a great fan base, without incredible boosters, it doesn't happen. And so if, if those people weren't involved, there's no way that Florida would be what it is. And so part of that is the narrative that we're telling is what's going to get people to want to keep reading. And so you've got to be intentional. And so even though you do have more uh, requirements and, and obligations in terms of uh, booster functions, um, speaking engagements, when you have time to be home and, with, and be with your family, you've got to be so intentional about that so they understand how much you value them. And that's just you know the profession that we chose. And uh, you, you deal with it, too, at your place there at IUPUI, and it's, it's tough. One of the other things, and if people can't tell this just from listening, I mean, you're an energetic, you're a passionate guy, you know, not everybody and every player that we get is, is wired that way. How do you infuse that level of energy and passion that you have in your staff and in your players? Because a lot of times you see, you know, a team's a reflection of their head coach and, and you bring that energy and passion. How do you do that with your team? Well, first and foremost, first time, you get on the phone with the young lady. First time you get on the phone with the prospective staff member, you know pretty early on in the conversation if we're jiving or not. You start to develop that. You know, kids that never call back, well, they don't like me and my personality might be too much, and that's okay. And that's what the fit is about. You got to have the, the best fit in your program, and that goes from staff members to players. And part of the the rat race of July when you're out 14 days watching players is you got to do your due diligence on watching the energy that these players bring to the bench, to the court. Um, when they're, when you're at their school, what do people say about them? I read an interesting quote, um, Brad Stevens said the other day, and he said, one of the first things he always tried to, um, figure out with the staff was, does this player bring energy? Does this, player take away energy and how hard would it be for us to infuse energy in that player and so you've got to figure out who it is that's going to most fit you and your personality first and foremost and i think that doing your due diligence being on the phone uh, gives you a lot of that but also just the reconnaissance that you have to do with your you know the coaches the people around the player to figure that out because it's not a fit for everyone it never is i think the other thing that goes into 
the coaching and the level of success is who you're surrounded by, what kind of staff, what kind of people that you're able to hire. And, you know, I can speak for myself. I mean, I think hiring assistant coaches and finding fit is a learned, uh, you know, a, a learned experience. It's not something that you're just able the first time knock it out of the park. And, and I think over the years, I've kind of figured out what's the best groove for me and what's the best flow for me and, and what am I looking for? For you, as you've shifted programs now and uh, as you've hired you know, different coaches over the years, what are the things that you look for and think are important? I like to err on the side of, of hiring the best person first, not the most experience, not, uh, not the person with the best uh, playing record or career. Um, I've always believed that if you hire the person that's excited to be with you, that's fired up about making that place better, that if they're that fired up about working and getting better, that they're going to learn. And so, you know, they've got to have obviously that doggedness uh, to just be determined to be great for themselves, but then also be great for the program. And, and um, they got to care about relationships first and foremost, because sometimes in this profession, people's ego can get in the way. And rather than um, being a team player, now it's, this is my recruit. This is my scout. Well, it's never just your recruit. It's our recruit. It's our scout. We all win and lose. Uh, there, there's no records that are kept track. And I think sometimes you can come across people where you can tell that it's all about their personal glory as opposed to just making where we are better because this is not my team. You know, Austin, that is not your team. That's IUPUI's team. This is the University of Florida's team. We just get to be the bus driver and get to help steer it the best we can. And so you want the people on that bus that are going to do their best for the university, not for their own personal career. Because oftentimes when that happens, that's when it gets derailed mostly and you get that flat tire on that bus. And you and I know it's, it's pretty hard changing a bus tire, ain't it? <laughs> well, the one thing you said is, is, and it reminds me, uh, I think the word I would say is sometimes there's emotional responses um, when it comes to recruiting versus what's best, what you said for the program. When, when I worked for, for coach Ron Hunter on the men's side, you know, I could have recruited a kid for two years. But if we recruited another kid for three months and he was better, you know what? So what? Let's let's that's the kid we want. That's the kid we're going to go after. But what I found when I first got this job was, you know, we would that same scenario. Uh, we would I would have assistants kind of make excuses for, well, but this kid's, you know, got a great family and they're great on the phone. And, and not that those things are obviously very, very important, but the emotional attachment to, hey, what's best for the program here? What's the best thing for, for us? And I think I, I've learned that along the way. And, and that was something that uh, I probably struggled with a little bit early in my career. Yeah, it's hard. Uh, you know, we had a situation recently with a player that we were in great with and, and all of a sudden she goes somewhere else and our staff's like, how in the world can that happen? And you got to sit there and take a look and be like, look, it's, it's no different than what we do sometimes. We can't sit here and think that we can judge for a moment what's best for her and, and where she was most comfortable. And that's the problem is that we hear no probably more than we hear yes. Mm -hmm. And so that emotional detachment you have to have and remember that this is a, a business, it's a profession where um, 
um, it's about the fit. And if, if you think you always know what the best fit is, that's when you're going to be most surprised and most upset. And now all of a sudden you've wasted two hours on going on to the next one or two days where now all of a sudden you're just upset. And that's where we as, as leaders of our program got to really carry that flag to show them that, look, we got to keep moving. Like, yeah, it stinks because we really wanted that person. But, hey, life goes on, and uh, it's all part of the business. And um, the thing is, if, if you don't believe in us and where we're going, well, then sure as heck we don't want you here anyway. So so be it. Well, that's such a key statement. I had a coach the other day talk to me. Um, you know, I'd lost a kid a couple years ago, and the coach said to me, well, this particular school, you know, really blew more smoke to her about what the opportunity was and this, that, and the other. And I said, you know, that's okay. That's no big deal because, you know, we're going to be – honest. We're going to be upfront. We're going to be blunt about it. And, and if we're not the right fit for you, that's okay. You know, go someplace else. But I think it also makes, and it's, I think why your program's successful. And I also think not just from a basketball standpoint, but why you have really good kids and, and, and typically really good culture is because on the front end of things, Hey, here's our standard. Here's what we do. And if you want to be part of that, we'd love it. But if not, that's okay too. And, and I think it ends up solving you know, solving some of those problems uh, in the long run. Yeah, that's one thing I've admired about you is I knew the first time when we played you, I knew what we were going to be up against. I knew your style of play and I knew how stinking hard you guys were going to play. And then it's been fun talking to you recruiting because there's been times where you would just flat out say to me, look, that, that kid don't play hard enough. She doesn't fit what we do. Yeah, she might do this, that, the other, but she doesn't play hard enough for how we're going to play, and so I'm not going to recruit her. And I think that's why you've had the success you've had because you found those kids. And, you know, we recruited against each other a bunch, and you found those kids that uh, are proud to be there. They're proud to play for you. They're proud for the style. But then your culture has been so good, and I think that's the other thing why you guys play so hard is because your kids really care about each other so much. One of the other things I want to back up a little bit, and I appreciate that. One of the best things I want to ask you about is Belmont. You know, you get to Belmont, that was your first head coaching job. And I always thought as an assistant, you know, you've got these ideas, you've got these things that go through your head. Well, if I was in charge, if I'm the head coach and then you're the head coach, what was the biggest eye opener from you from day one where you moved from that chair as an assistant to now being a head coach? Well, you said earlier about emotions. <laughs> um, you can't prepare for the emotions of the official making that bad call that really hurts your team. You can't prepare as an assistant coach. I used to wonder why Andy Landers and Jeff Walls and my previous bosses would get so worked up. And I'm like, hey, it's just a bad call. Well, then all of a sudden you're realizing what that really does to the game because now every possession is is, is on you. And all of a sudden uh, you guys work all week for this play you're going to run in the game and you're fully prepared for it. Then you run it in the game game and the one player just forgets what they're supposed to do and so just checking those emotions because you can't nothing prepares you for those moments and for me I'm such an emotional person I think that was the biggest adjustment with how I reacted how I controlled myself um, you know that that was hard to get a hold of that because you want to win so bad and, and you can end up kind of just snapping at times and getting frustrated to where now all of a sudden it takes you five minutes to get your head back because you're so stinking upset about that and so I think that was probably the biggest struggle that I had early on uh, was just having a, a grip on that because you're you know Shaq said once if the generals calm the troops are calm mm -hmm. well 
that means your staff, that means your players. If you're on the sideline going ape crap, well, then all, they're going to think that they can do it. Mm-hmm. And so it's just that process of maturation that you have to go through and understand because you can't be prepared for that. There, there's no way that, that, you're, that, that, that you know what's coming until you're in the middle of it. Well, you you made a dramatic turnaround there at Belmont. Uh, Historic. I mean, you guys set records uh, offensively. You go to the NCAA tournament twice. And I also think, to me, one of the great signs of a a really good coach is even after you left, they were good the following year. And and I think a lot of that has to do with the culture that you established. But one of the, the, the neat moments, and I remember watching this, you guys go to the NCAA tournament and you're playing Kentucky. SEC Kentucky, you almost beat them. Talk about that experience being the NCAA tournament and almost being able to beat uh, a team of that caliber. That was, you know, that that took years kind of to, to get us to, to where we were able to have the ball down three with the chance on Kentucky's home floor in the NCAA tournament. That that you see those moments and the untold story of what happened. You know, from day one, uh, when I took that job, it was when it began because we had a, a group of seniors that didn't pick me, but they were at Belmont when I got the job and they just bought in completely to culture. They bought into boundaries. They bought into accountability. And what they did is they carried that for four years. And so each year we built on that and we, we got better players. Uh, we got lucky. I mean, I mean, if I told you the amount of luck we had in, in the connections with how, you know, we got Darby Maggard. I'm from basically the same hometown. I've known her for a long time. Kylie Smith, I recruited her as an eighth grader at Georgia. So I had known her for years before she transferred to us at Belmont. Sally McCabe, uh, I knew some of her dad's friends friends for years when I was at Georgia and Louisville. And so it was kind of the perfect storm with work I had done earlier to how we got those players. And it was kind of the same thing that happens when you, when you uh, start building the program is that you come to a moment in the NCAA tournament where you don't fully understand that three years ago or four years ago, that one pivotal practice where a teammate stepped up and challenged one of your best players in front of everyone else. You don't understand that three years ago, that's what affords us this moment today. And so that's just the process that you're always preaching to your kids is that you're not spending 30 extra minutes today shooting for tomorrow. You're not doing it for next week. You never know when that moment's going to arise. But if you don't do that work today, you're never going to have that opportunity. And so it was a testament to the culture that our seniors created that first year. And, and they carried along from my, all four years I had them at Belmont from their freshman year on. And just the, you know, so many times people think that we, we are the reason why all this happens. Now, we direct the traffic, but it's the players. It's their character. It's who they're trying to really be that makes it happen. And so I couldn't have been more grateful and blessed to have so many great people and those young ladies that we had at Belmont. And uh, for them to carry us through that and to be in that moment was just so special. And, you know, it's just tough because at that level, if you can win an NCAA tournament game, especially in women's basketball, you know, 13s don't beat um, fours. That doesn't happen. And, and we, uh, two years in a row, you know, we lost lost to Michigan State by 12, lost to Kentucky by three. And it's just such a special time and moment for that. And, uh, you know, it just helps you as a, as, a, as a man see kind of the process yourself because you preach it so much, but you never fully understand it. Well, obviously it was a historic run. Uh, 
know, for you guys at Belmont. And, and I think anybody in the business knew when you got that opportunity to be a head coach, you were going to be successful. You have some, some very rich pedigree that you come from and, and the people that you've been able to work for from Louisville and Georgia. Let's back up and talk about what it was like working at Louisville and for coach Jeff Walls, who's now right now, currently, I think coaching the USA national team. What was that experience like? And what was it like working for him? I, I was only there one year and, um, you know, we went to the national championship game and, uh, learned so much from Jeff and his staff. Uh, what he's done there is just incredible. Um, they, you know, attendance wise, uh, one of the top five every year in the nation. It's the largest city in America without pro sports. Um, you know, Kentucky's a great basketball state. So just getting to experience that uh, basketball greatness there. You know, the, the, the men won the national championship that year. Uh, we lost it. And so it was just such a fun time to be at Louisville. And then to work for Jeff, a great offensive mind. Jeff Walls is one of those guys that uh, has a vision for how he's going to do things, and that's what he does. Um, And uh, that's why you respect him, because it's not about pleasing anyone else. It's about doing what he thinks is right for his program. And so I gained a lot of confidence from Jeff and his staff working for him. And uh, it was just it was an amazing year. You know, you dream of of getting to go to a sweet 16 and elite eight. And we were playing Baylor, Brittany Griner's senior year. We were playing them in Oklahoma city in the sweet 16 and it was Easter Sunday. And we woke up that morning before the game. And Jeff told me we were 28 and a half point underdogs. <laughs> and, uh, we beat them. We, we ended up beating them by one and we go to the elite eight and we play university of Tennessee and we, we beat them pretty pretty easily. We go to the final four and we're playing Cal and we're at, we're down like twelve at halftime. We come back and we beat Cal. And then all of a sudden you get to the national championship game and you're thinking, hey, you know, we just beat Baylor with Griner, we beat Tennessee, and then you get beat by thirty three to UConn. <laughs> 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 and uh you know, it's Brianna Stewart was a freshman, and the only play, the only play of the entire game I remember was in the first half. She tipped the ball in, and I swear to you, she tipped it down into the net. It was amazing. <laughs> well, that was murder's row. I mean, that, you know, to the, the run that you guys made, and, and I think watching, you know, Coach Walls from afar, I mean, his game plans, game in and game out, and being able to, like you mentioned, down, you know, 28 and a half point underdog to not just win that game, but make, you know, even make it competitive, you, you got to have some some, you know, tweaks and different things. One of the things I heard him talk about, I heard him speak at a final four and he talked about how during practice, most programs, you know, for those listening, most programs, the coaching staff gets together. The head coach may have a, a, you know, a practice plan. They may plan it together. They may, you know, that type of thing. He talked about, he doesn't ever have a practice plan and that like literally he shows up and they just roll and Austin, his assistants, you know, one, is this accurate? And two, as an assistant coach, were you pulling your hair out? So you heard me reference earlier, his confidence. I'm going to say unbridled confidence in himself. So on my interview, they told me this and I didn't believe it. First true story. First practice ever. We're shooting free throws And I walk up to him and I said, hey, man, uh, I got this rebounding drill called the Nick drill that we used to do with the men at Siena. And I think it'd be really good. And he looks at me and he goes, "Okay, sounds good. He blows the whistle and he's like, all right, Cam, you're up. 
And I'm literally like, uh, uh, and, and you know, you're not used to that because coming from coach Landers and Dennis Felton and, and Rob Lanier, my previous mentors and coaches, you always had a practice plan. So all of a sudden you're thrown to the middle of it and you're in charge and you better be ready to go. And so it, it was kind of unnerving, but at the same time, it's like, you know what? You need to know, you need to know your stuff. If you're going to be suggesting something, you got to know it whenever he needs it. And that's the same in a game. If you got a play that you think we should run out of a timeout, well, you got to be ready. And he did, he did that uh, in the national championship game. Uh, I'm sorry, in the final four game versus Cal, we're walking into the locker room and I'm telling him that we got a certain play that if we run the tweak to it, we're going to hit a three. And he looks at me and he goes, go draw it up. I go in at halftime. I draw the play up on the board. We run, we run it right out of halftime, and uh, Shoney hits a three to start our run. But, but because he had that confidence, he bred that confidence in you by showing you that, look, man, if you don't have a plan, trust your instincts, trust your mind that you can do this and do it. And so it went from being unnerving to all of a sudden kind of like, yeah, I can do this. And that's, it helped me get the confidence that I knew I could be a head coach. So I need to know, do you have a practice plan? Heck yeah, because okay. I am a detail freak, but there, but, but there are some times when I don't and our staff kind of gets frustrated. <laughs> well, I mean, sometimes, you know, obviously maybe you're coming from home or whatever the case may be, yep. but yeah, when I heard that story, I was just thinking to my days as an assistant coach and the undue stress that would have initially put on me of going, okay, what's next? What are we doing next? And, uh, he had a lot of people in the room laughing when he told that story. You obviously worked for, uh, Andy Landers at Georgia. You were a young coach you knew his reputation, you knew kind of his status in the, in the profession as a young coach, you know, what were your nerves like and how did you find your niche within that staff uh, early in your career? Well, I think you have to be confident in yourself with your strengths and weaknesses and what you bring to the table. I was fortunate um, that, you know, Coach Landers, Hall of Fame coach, is one of the five winningest coaches of all time, women's basketball, pioneer. Uh, he had approached me. We became friends while I was on the men's staff at Georgia. And he approached me about joining his staff. And I really had to check my ego because at the time, being in the SEC with men's basketball, this was when Florida won back-to-back championships. And so my ego was really being fed with the fact that I'm in the best men's basketball conference in the country. Um, all the dunking, all the NBA players, all the excitement. And when Coach Landers approached me, it really forced me to check my ego and to really look into why do I coach? Am I coaching for the ego and for the excitement or am I coaching because I want to coach and make an impact in people's lives? And so when I joined his staff, um, that was a big part of it was I, I realized like, look, am I doing this for the right reasons? And so I, I joined the women's side and found that my personality and energy is more conducive probably because I like to have fun. You know, a lot of times dudes, Austin, you can probably relate to this when you played at Purdue, you guys go on road trips and dudes just want to sleep. You guys just like want to stay in the hotel room, you know? <laughs> well, I, I always tell people that, that, you know, we have people travel with us and they're always amazed how much fun the young ladies are to travel with. And obviously uh, how engaged they are in, in conversation with, with, you know, people that travel, people that come around the program. And the other thing I tell people too, is I love the fact that, you know, in women's basketball, 
you know, these young ladies care about what they're going to do after basketball. They truly care about their academics. And I, I think I've told this before, but I remember being on the men's side and I'd have guys that, I mean, would, would write, you know, Hey, so-and-so to the league on their shoes. And I'm just like, what <laughs> league? Like you're not going to be drafted. And, and the, the, you know, prism with which they looked through things was so different. And obviously there was a, a certain level of competitiveness to that, that I enjoyed, but the, the irrational aspect of it. I really enjoy, you know, that aspect with the young ladies and I'm sure you probably feel the same way. Yeah. The maturation process is so different. I mean, um, college age, boys and college age girls are completely different and that's one thing I mean it's a reason why I married younger and my wife married older you know because guys just aren't as as mature and focused on on what's next in their life all the time and and that's the great thing about women's college basketball is the fan engagement that our young ladies have the community service they want to reach out and it's bigger than themselves and um it's just I don't know what it is about men and women, but I feel like women do mature earlier. And um, it is the great thing about it because it's not just basketball. And so I think fans, when they're around and when they give us a chance to really get to know these teams, that they see how much they enjoy being around these young ladies because it's it's more about just the, the process and meeting people and growing the community that makes it so much fun. And that's why I like it so much. A couple random questions for you just about the game and some coaching items. You know, what rule uh, change would you like to see in women's basketball or what's a rule that's changed that you're not super fired up about? Well, I, I hate the fact that um, two, they both changed this year and people think I'm nuts, but I don't like the fact that you get to pick what side of the sideline you get to take it out on if you advance it. And I don't like the fact that you, that, that lose it, use it or lose it timeout. Now you, you don't lose it because here's why it is our job as a coach to have our team prepared to where we can run a play on both sidelines. Mm -hmm. So I think part of being a tactician and a great coach is having your team prepared for that moment. Now that coach that is not prepared gets to pick what sideline. So now they only have one play. They run all year long and it's this side. So I think that takes away part of the chess match of being a coach and the same thing with that timeout because now it's not my fault that you don't know how to manage your timeouts late in the game to have one left to advance the ball but now because if you don't use it in the first half you just automatically have all four I think it takes out part of that tactician part of it that, that I loved about and that I was always prepared with so I felt like I kind of lost an advantage because that was a strength of mine to where now it's kind of an even more even playing field. You know what I mean? You know, um, I, I agree with you on the timeout situation. I a hundred percent agree, you know, of not being able to manage your timeouts. The one thing I would, I, I do, I don't mind being able to pick which side only from the standpoint, some of the different arenas that we play in and the way they're configured. Um, and I'll give you a perfect example in, in our gym. Um, our sideline with where the uh, scores table is, there's very little room. You feel like everything's, there's just kind of no space. And uh, if you take it off from across the floor, there's a little bit more space uh, to, to kind of stand and, and, you know, maybe see what's going on. So for me, I, I, that would be the only difference is that there's, you know, the way some of these arenas are kind of configured, uh, there may be a, you know, a better advantage. I know some places like when we played uh, Western Illinois a few years ago, they 
put the ROTC uh, right behind our bench. And, uh, you know, if I'd had that option, I would have just taken it on the other side because there was nobody on the other side. That's, uh, to, that's to a be, great point. To, I never thought to, about to, that. But seriously, to, I know what you're talking about. And I wonder how, how it makes the inbounder feel as well, like a little claustrophobic and more pressure. That's a great point. Well, and I think sometimes, like even me, like I'm, you know, as a coach, you're standing over there, if it's on your sideline and maybe you see something and you're shouting out, you know, she's open. And then they just fire, you know, <laughs> like uh, maybe, maybe it's better being away from me on the other side. But how do, how I agree. You, and hey, the one I hope they don't change, you know, they're talking about putting the international three point line in. And I don't like that because we just made these changes to create more offense, to put more points on the board. And the game's getting more fun to watch. Now, all of a sudden, you push back the three-point line, and are we going to take points off the board and make it you know, lower scoring? Yeah, I totally agree. It makes no sense to be able to do that, especially when you look at from a – we just have a historic Final Four of interest. We've got WNBA ratings are you know up, uh, and scoring across the board is up. And I know that they made those rule changes probably – I think it was four years ago now where uh, the hand checks and they've kind of given a freedom of movement. And I think now you're really starting to see that come to fruition. And uh, the way the three-point shot's being utilized on all levels, you know, NBA and high school, to move it and, and make the international line, it doesn't make a lot of sense. And, and I agree with you. Yeah, I wish men's basketball would do the advanced sideline advance. I think that would be incredible. Well, that was my next question for you. What do you? I, I love it. I, I think it's it, it to me. It uh, you know, and we've lost some games from that. I mean, we've lost some games being uh, with the other team being able to timeout advance and. I don't care one bit. I think it's awesome. I think it creates strategy. I think you've got to prepare. My question for you is how do you, how do you go about it? Do you have some specific plays or are you drawing stuff up in the dirt, you know, in those scenarios? We practice uh, specific plays a lot and we've got a lot of them. And throughout the year, I'll make tweaks to them. I'll add to them. Uh, and I start early on in, uh, in our 40, you know, the 42 days to practice 30 times. I start early on with that, trying to see how comfortable they are with the footwork, trying to see how comfortable they are with the cuts. Um, and I like to have different plays for five seconds or less, 15 seconds or less. Um, and I think you got to be strategic too. Like if a team's not pressing you and there's 15 seconds left, I don't think you call a timeout advance it because now all of a sudden they're going to get the ball back. So I'd rather walk it up the floor and run a quick hitter that we've got in the half court uh, and then save that. So now if you miss, you can foul quickly and then still get it side out with two seconds or left. So I think there's a number of different things you can do, but you've got to educate your players because, um, you know, I saw a game last year where a player got a rebound and took a dribble and tried calling it. And all of a sudden it's still full court because they didn't realize that you couldn't dribble. So it's it's on us. You remember in our game at uh, at our place, uh, <laughs> the ref, you were trying like crazy to call timeout. I don't know if they ignored you or what, but the ball did come in. But you probably should have got the time. I mean, you know. And again, it was one of those things like you as a coach, you kind of anticipate that they're paying attention to that. They weren't. And uh, secretly I was fist pumping that they didn't allow you guys to and, advance. And we talked about emotions earlier and I, I easily probably could have been kicked out that last three seconds of the game. I remember. Yeah, I forgot about that. I forgot about that. Well, as head coaches, you know, we, we experience a lot of different things, but we also have some funny stuff that happens. Give me the most embarrassing moment for you as a head coach. 
Oh, well, can I give you, can I give you the most embarrassing as an, it's, sure. it's as an yeah, assistant. Yeah. Yep. This is bad. This is really, really bad. And Jeff Walls and I were talking about it the other day. We, it's the Baylor game. And there's like four seconds to go. We're down one, and Monique Reed gets fouled by Brittany Griner on a left-hand layup. We are shooting two free throws, and we're down one. So we have to make both free throws to win the game, right? Mm-hmm. Monique Reed <laughs> makes the first free throw. I walk up to Jeff Walls, and I go, hey, Jeff, she, she needs – there was like 3.2. It, it was, it was a, a short clock, and I said, hey. Jeff, she, she needs to miss this one. She needs to miss this one. They don't have any timeouts left. <laughs> oh, boy. And Jeff looks at me and he goes, Cam, we're tied. <laughs> <laughs> I completely screwed it up. And so I can kind of relate with J.R. Smith, you know, but uh, it's funny because Jeff brought that up this summer on the road and I was like, oh my gosh, I forgot about that. <laughs> Wow, that's 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 an embarrassing moment. I, you know, mine would have been, and actually, it was the first week I, I took over as coach. You know, I'd been on the men's side, and uh, when when I played for Coach Katie, we had a rule: if uh, if you got into somebody's airspace, you had to warn them the first time and say, "Hey, you know, if you get that close again, you're going to catch an elbow." The next time they did it, you were allowed to elbow them in the face, and so wow. uh, that was a rule. I mean, like, and and that's just kind of the way we went. Well. I'm talking to my team and, and, you know, I, I become uh, the interim coach for the year. And uh, one of our first practices I talk about, like, you know, they climb into your airspace, you always warn them and then boom, bring the, you know, bring the elbow through. And um, we were in one of our practices and I had this kid from, uh, from Alabama it was really tough. And I look up, I don't know what I was paying about half attention. And I see this kid on the ground and she's grabbing her nose and the entire team's looking at me. And they said, you know, I said, did you warn her? She said, yeah, coach, I warned her. I said, well, okay. So, you know, we move on. Well, that's back when they used to send an official to come speak to your team about the upcoming rule changes and the rules. <laughs> now, this is my first year as coach. I've been talking about this. And the very first thing out of the official to my team is, if you swing through with an elbow, it's an automatic technical and possibly an ejection. And if you could have seen my entire team look at me with a look of like, you're the idiot coaching us. Like, what is going on here? And so I, I quickly had to, you know, adapt to, to kind of the, the rules. But here I'd been talking about this and the, the ref comes in and, and bursts my bubble. But I think as coaches, we all have stuff like that uh, over the course of Classic. our career. You watch, you know, I know you're a fan of other coaches. Give me some of the other coaches, uh, either on the men's side, women's side, that you really enjoy watching and try to follow uh, and, and try to help, you know, help you grow as a coach. I mean, Brad Stevens, obviously, just because of the Indiana roots, and I knew him a little bit when I was on the men's side. Um, what what he's done at Boston, how he carries himself, handles himself, I think is fantastic. Um, I like watching, you know, Tom Izzo has great late game stuff. Um, you know, Vic Schaefer in our league is a tremendous tactician. He does great, great things on both sides of the ball. Um, and then every once in a while, you know, I'll just, I, I stumbled uh, upon um, Idaho. Idaho women's basketball. I don't even, I can't tell you the coach's name. I'd love to meet him, but you know, he's got a ton of shooters and they spread the floor and they run some really good stuff. Um, you know, I like to, a lot of times I'll just be watching games. I really like to turn on games in the last five minutes or so and see specifically what teams run when they really need a basket and try to steal some of those ideas. Um, so 
wouldn't really say a ton of people specifically. Um, but you know, it's funny. I heard you, uh, your last podcast with, with Dan, you were talking, uh, when he works for Mike Davis, I've got an offensive playbook on VHS that I watch a lot from Mike Davis's early years at Indiana. Cause he was, I agree with what you said. People don't understand how good he was and what he did at IU and, you know, stole some stuff from him that I, that I've ran every year. I've been a head coach. So just try to find things I really like and, and steal with, it. I mean, I, heck man, I've, I've got four plays that I saw this summer from AAU teams that I love. So mm-hmm. you can just find it anywhere. What about outside of basketball, any programs you follow or any specific coach that you pull from and kind of what you do? Um, you know, we talk emotion. One thing I try to read a lot about on it in practice is some stoicism. Um, just learning to, to be even keeled with, you know, things that happen in life, uh, just because of this, this profession, how hard it is, <clears throat> the, uh, the rigors of it. And then a family, you know, so not necessarily a program, but just trying to be, uh, better with my emotions and how I handle myself and how I deal with, um, just life, you know, and, and trying to be a better person all the time because I can't sit here and say I'm a relationship person and then I don't do anything mm-hmm. to better myself and try to be better. So, uh, I never used to read and I, I read a lot now as a head coach. That's kind of my mentor is reading. So I enjoy reading a lot. The two, I'm a huge football guy and the two coaches I've, I've been actually three, um, that I've enjoyed reading the most on is Belichick, Saban, and then Chip Kelly and the Patriots and, and the way Belichick and, and Chip Kelly, how quickly they move up and down the field and their, their terminology and how they phrase things and how they communicate plays in from the sideline. And I'm always trying to think, how could we apply that in basketball and be able to get, you know, our information or our, you know, subtle wrinkles, um, into the game kind of seamlessly because in football, obviously you get to stop every time. Yeah. It's funny you say that because uh, one of my favorite books I read last summer was the education of a coach about Bill Belichick, trying to learn some of those things you're talking about uh, because it is, it's impressive. You know, I like to go over and watch our football team practice to see how quickly they get in and out of things because the pace uh, of how you want to play and especially you guys, the way you play too, how you can dictate that and the communication is so important. And so it's, uh, it's fun to watch other sports, like you're saying too, to try to figure out how you can assimilate that and talk to those people because coaching's coaching and how you implement things a lot of times there's a lot of crossover um and it is it's it's crazy those uh, the west coast chip kelly offense what they do um and that's a great idea with i never even thought about researching him a little bit and here's my question man do you think that brady like anytime he had like a, a deep route or a post route for randy moss do you think he would just like look over and like audible and be like straight cash homie straight cash homie <laughs> <laughs> i always think back to like uh my, my college days that my roommate and i would play madden and it used to tick me off because he just pick like whoever team randy moss was and send him deep every time and so yeah that's probably what tom brady was like you know what we're just going deep you know deep with it but uh well, hey, let me get you out of here on this question. Um, I have no doubt, you know, Florida basketball is, is on the upswing and it's going to make some huge strides uh, in the very near future. Give us a little preview for next year, what we can expect from your team and kind of what to look forward for too. We're going to be undersized, uh, not going to have tremendous height that we had last year with our two six fours we lost that were skilled, um, but uh, going to have some really good guards that I, I feel really good about. I think we'll probably actually shoot more threes than we did last year. Might do some more four guards, spread the floor a little more if that's possible. Um, defensively, mix it up. 
Uh, we're going to be so young. We got seven new players. Uh, you know, we actually come up there. We come play at Indiana next year, the night before Thanksgiving. So look, look, uh, looking forward to getting back to the motherland and excited to, to have this new chapter begin. Workouts have been great this summer. And like I said earlier, man, the challenge of what we do is what makes this so much fun. So appreciate you having me on, Austin, and uh, appreciate your friendship. And It's been great getting to know you and always excited to, to see what you guys do at IUPUI as well. Well, thanks again for joining us. And like I said, we're excited to see what, what the future holds for Florida. And uh, I know you'll do great things. So thanks again for joining us. Appreciate it, man. Take care. Appreciate Cam joining us on the podcast this week. Awesome stories. Glad to hear he's feeling better after that rough trip overseas. But as you can tell from his energy and passion, the University of Florida is well on its way back. And I can't wait to see the progress they make this year. And I'm sure you'll be seeing them in the NCAA tournament in the very near future. Once again, head to iTunes. Sign up for the podcast. Subscribe. Don't be afraid to leave a little feedback for us as well. Have a great week and thank you for listening. Thank you.